run this one more time, Charles, and this time can you please turn it up in my headphones? You want me to start it over or just keep it running? <laughs> just keep it running. <laughs> Good. I don't want to put anyone through that. <laughs> it's been a while since we've gone this deep. Let's uh, just play it out and see what happens. You know we're deep when it starts doing that howl. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today is Dylan. No surprise there, everybody. Yeah, I mean, this ain't Mistborn. <laughs> Because there's no twists for you in who the host is. Wow. Hey, buddy. Okay. Well, this isn't Mistborn, but we are going to be talking about Mistborn for probably the last time for a long while. This is our buddy read of Mistborn Book 3, The Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson. Huge milestone for the show today as we wrap up our first trilogy. And not only are we wrapping up our first trilogy, Charles, we're wrapping up our first buddy read of a series. That's right. I think it's gone really well so far. I'm very happy with it. And I'm looking forward to our next buddy read, which those of you who uh, listened to last week's episode know, we are going to go into the Kingkiller Chronicles, which I'm super excited to do. Yeah, I'm raring to go with that one. I've got I... it downloaded on my Kindle, ready to go. Can't wait to crack the cover. Yeah, I'm excited too. I... I think it's going to be an interesting foray into a new world for you, Charles. I'm very excited. But before we go to a new world, we have to bid a fond farewell to this world, Mistborn, and uh, the Hero of Ages. It's a fantastic ending to a fantastic series, and we're going to get into the thick of it today. Shall we just kick off with the intro? Do you want to read it? Should I read it? Where, where are you feeling? You know, Charles, I'm going to trust you to take the intro. You did such a great wow. job with the last intro. And it's true, to let I people did. behind the curtain, you wrote this intro. And I can't 100% say I have read it yet. <laughs> so, I, well, I figured you edited it up. A, you cleaned it. it up a little bit. But yeah, I did do. I mean, to be fair, Wikipedia wrote most of it, but, you know, we, wor- we worked it out. Added some important details. Mm. So Were you just trying to avoid having to say hemallergy? Pretty much. I think I only say it once in the whole thing here. <laughs> but I've been practicing, <laughs> I, so we'll see. <laughs> it's not your best spelling performance. The attempt to spell hemallergy didn't go as well as I'm sure you're. Well, you know, we don't need to open the curtain to. too much, Dylan, okay? <laughs> I tried to All spell right. it a little more phonetically so I can actually say it. 
Well, all right. Well, uh, you wish me luck. I'm going to go into it. So this is the intro for Mistborn Book Three, The Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson. Here we go. Ruin has been released. Weakened by opposing force preservation, Ruin is using hemolurgy to manipulate anyone he can to advance his purpose of ending the world. Thank you. Vin, Ellen, Ham, and Chet are on the warpath to unite humanity and hunt down the Lord Ruler's storage caches, leaving survival resources and clues. Their biggest challenge is Lord Aradan Yeoman, the new king of Fadrek City. He is an obligator devout to the Lord Ruler, believing him to still be alive. Say Zed and Breeze work with Spook, who has developed strange abilities, to help Ellen take over a neighboring kingdom and home to one of the last storage caches, Urtau. Tensoon the Chondra is imprisoned and sentenced to death by the Chondra elders, while still trying to convince them that the Chondra prophecies of the world ending are now happening and that they must work together with the humans to save the world. Can Team Vin stop the mist, ash, and earthquakes from destroying the world? Can they beat a god again? Beautiful, Charles. Did was that concluding line from Wikipedia? Or that did you was, write that? of course not. I had to add a little spiciness, a little drama. That was all me. Oh, that's a really spicy. Did you write <laughs> Team Vin also? I did write Team Vin also because <laughs> I don't want to say can everybody. I, I wanted to just loop all the good guys together without saying the good guys. Yeah, Team Vin. Yeah. Well, that's good. I, I like it, Charles. Thank you. No, I, I thought it was good, too. I, I was happy with the way that came out. Touches on all the all story right. beats that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, yeah. How, how would you like to start off the conversation there, Dylan? Well, I think that we'll start off by introducing how we'll go through this thing. We basically mm. split the story up into three separate storylines, which aligned pretty well with the way that Sanderson ended up writing this book. Uh, Sanderson apparently uh, wrote the spook stuff uh, all separately from everything else, wrote the Tensoon stuff all separately from everything else. And then I guess that pretty much just leaves what's left with the Vin and Ellen stuff were being written together so uh, we split things up where we're going to talk about the storyline revolving around Spook and his fight against the Sisson and Orto um, first then we'll get into the storyline in Fadrix where Vin, Ellen and uh, I'm glad you mentioned Ham in the summary you know it just yeah. wouldn't be <laughs> Ham plays a very across. critical role in this <laughs> in, in, yeah. this, in this book yeah, I mean, I wouldn't quite say he gets uh, so much time to shine in this one, but he, he got into the summary. But yeah, the storyline that we'll cover second is Vin, Ellen, and their crew going up against Yeoman. And then we'll get to the Tensoon stuff after that. And then we'll we'll talk about the ending to the book and uh, therefore the series. Yes, I would almost consider the last hundred pages as like its own storyline separate from the three that you had described, but we can get into that. But they just kind of all converge and then move forward in this like rising action climactic section that I would even consider its own 
unique section of the book. Yeah. And it's such a great ending. We'll get into the specifics around that, but I'm super pumped to talk about with you. Great. So you want to open us up to your thoughts on this whole spook, Sezed, Breeze combination, this whole storyline that they're taking on the citizen? Yeah, I'm glad to. I think we were going to take this similar to how we took the Zanevin storyline in our last Mistborn Buddy Read episode, which is first talk about what was the point of these storylines and then get into how well do we think it worked. And I I took down a, a quote when I was reading through, you know, Sanderson annotates all of his Mistborn books with these comments about what he was trying to get into. And I, I found one with the spook storyline that Great. he, or, or maybe the citizen storyline is the best way to speak of it for this quote. Uh, he says, Anyway, I thought about what would happen if Kelsier's vision became reality, and this is what I came up with. There's more going on here, things that relate to the overarching plot of the book, but the basic concept is just what it seems to be. I toyed with doing a form of government that was more radical and new, but I eventually decided that the historical approach of the lower class becoming as intolerant as the former ruling class was the most logical. And Mm. I think that's one of the main things that, Sanderson's trying to explore with this storyline. Um, we can get more into the the aspects he refers to as the right. the plot stuff too, but I think this is what he's getting into. Definitely, the whole way that this city is set up is unique because you have like the Vin Ellen line where you have Yeoman who is pretty much another Lord Ruler. He's trying to perpetuate the nobility and balls and the old school. And then you have Vin and Ellen who are trying to forge a new path. But then it's interesting to see how he treats the citizen, which is essentially a vehicle for, you know, Kelsier, the darker side of Kelsier's philosophy and kind of the danger that Kelsier's philosophy presented back in book one. And you're kind of seeing the repercussions of that now in this government where they're extra violent towards anyone with noble bloodline and they're doing it all under the Church of the Survivor's name. So it's it's an interesting idea, an interesting look into the darker, more violent side of Kelsier's philosophies. Yeah. I figure if we want to throw any highlights of anything that we liked about this or stuff like that, then we can do that now. If not, we can just dive into how successful we think it was. Well, I would only say that we've brought it up a bunch of times now. I mean, it's hard not to repeat ourselves after spending over two hours talking about the Mistborn series already. But in the context of this storyline, we've always said that Kelsier is a bad guy for a lot of, in a lot of ways. So it's nice to see that darker side being acknowledged by Sanderson in the form of the citizen and the, the, the way he violently rules over these people. Yeah, I'm interested in the idea to a pretty large extent. I've mentioned this before. Kelsier is, at least in the first book, my favorite character. And I love 
the presence he has over the remaining books without being resurrected or anything like that, despite the fact that that's toyed with some in this section. So I appreciate that misdirection as well, that Kelsier is the form that Ruin ends up taking in order to manipulate Spook. Yes. It's, it was nice to see Kelsier return in some way, and it was nice to see how he played into the insecurities of, of Spook, and it was all just this plan of ruin to manipulate him as well as, which is another twist of the story, the citizen. Um, there, as, as strong of a force as Kelsier was to implement positive change in the world, he... He could never be the person that uh, villain Vin and Ellen and Spook are trying to be in this book because of his violent side. What what I think is most interesting about Kelsier is I think he knows he's a bad guy. I don't think that he would consider himself good. He's very violent and has tendencies towards just going out and assassinating people. He just has a blind hatred for the nobility. He's not like the people he surrounds himself with and i think you know his relationship with his wife oh my gosh uh Fenzer, thank you mayor uh uh so he by falling in love with her he sees that sort of more um doing good and good for the sake of being good and trust and love and then when she dies he snaps and becomes even more violent and i think that's why he was surrounding himself with people like breeze and say and and spook people that want to do good, but uh, and just for the sake of being good, because he's not like that. He just sees it in others and wants to preserve it, but he he's not that way himself. So I think this spook storyline plays a big part in that of like Kelsier in the first book, he was the driving force, but he could never be the one to be leading this final movement and that's why he's kind of been passing the torch and this idea that spook overcomes his temptation of the dark side of kelsier's philosophies to become a his own ruler and his own right his own leader and uh he's able to fall in love for himself as well which we talk about yeah well i think this I'll maybe start to get into some of how successful <laughs> I, I think this all was because this storyline reminds me in so many ways of our conversation about the the Zane storyline in the second book. So both on a maybe more superficial level in the sense that uh, the Zane storyline, a big part of it is that when there's a spike in you, ruin can start to control you. And that is played up with both the citizen and spook in this storyline where, you know, right. spook has gets rammed through basically. I, I think it's a spear if I'm remembering correctly, but some weapon rams through a spear or a, a sword. I can't remember. Yeah. Either way it rams through a pewter burner and then, into spook and then gets and, broken off and stuck yes stuck inside him and then the the citizen who is i guess already vulnerable in some way he was able to be convinced to like 
put the spike in himself or whatever. And that, uh, yeah, I I think something Sanderson gets at here that I I don't know uh, how strong I feel about that is like people with more mental health issues are more vulnerable to just ruin taking control of them in in general. But um, (laughs) I think that's like Sis in his plate is like, oh, he's unstable. So ruin was able to manipulate him. But uh, either way, it, it's used to get across these plot elements of uh, actually seeing someone that we know in Spook go through the process of kind of losing their mind as Ruin is taking them over. And then uh, we'll get more to what that culminates with where, where Spook sends that message that Marsh then receives. So that's like a big plot right. element that comes out of this. Yes. Um, but similar to uh, Zane, I felt like there was kind of this this push and pull, if you will, um, which is my misborn joke. <laughs> There's a, a push I and pull you. going on <laughs> between <laughs> these plot things that Sanderson's trying to get across and then being able to actually fully explore what's a really interesting idea that revolves around getting deeper into Kelsier's mindset and philosophies. And I felt as though this idea that Sanderson gets across in the quote I read earlier is a really interesting one and one I I would have loved to really get to explore in depth. But I also like did not really buy the citizen as the manifestation of what Kelsier's philosophies actually were i felt like the citizen was way more of a hypocrite than kelsier obviously with all the uh, he's sneaking away alamancers when he's supposed to be burning all these nobles and i felt like kelsier was not a hypocrite yes he was a as i've said before a bad bad man in a lot (laughs) of ways yeah um but i i feel like there are a lot of things that could have gone really awry as we've talked about in previous episodes, if Kelsey was put in charge of the kingdom in the way that Ellen ended up being put in charge of one, but I don't really think they are the things that end up going awry in this storyline. And part of that is because they're trying to play or Sanderson's kind of trying to play both angles with this uh, ruin, taking control of people. And I'm exploring Kelsey's philosophy taking to its end. Right. I would agree with, a lot of those points for me is it i say it's more successful to me than the zane vin relationship i think there was just a clear miss for me with zane and that he wasn't likable in any way when he was supposed to be tempting and he wasn't tempting at all whereas at least this is more serviceable i can tell that sanderson just really likes spook which i don't know really why because we haven't really gotten any spook stuff until now but it is kind of interesting to see a, a minor character getting built up and i think the biggest thing he's trying to get across here is how hemology was being used by ruin to thwart ellen and vin in the present moment and it was also a way we get to see a, a savant alamancer, which didn't end up 
doing anything really, but it was cool. (laughs) That was one of my favorite parts of these storylines was seeing the new spook wearing the bandages over his eyes and things like that were cool. It does come into play at the end when he goes into the burning uh, cash and release the the water flow he was able to it wasn't the fact that he was a savant but it was like the the talking about push and pull it was the negative effect that he used as a positive to be able to run into a building burning building and not feel anything and just make it to the switch or the lever or whatever and and flip it to let the water run through the city so it was kind of interesting in that way the the biggest thing though was he discovered that ruin was tricking people through hemology and that there was any bits yes. of metal any bits and that was the thing in his note that marsh read that mm-hmm. sent everything into motion so yeah and and those were all really well plotted out i think you know it, it was interesting i think we could have a whole conversation just about the experiences we had rereading this series because once mm-hmm. like it was really well plotted out I, I remember from years ago reading this being surprised by every single twist thrown at us i don't remember predicting anything that happened in this series but when you read back knowing what happens so you read that moment where the sword goes through one guy and into spook and gets ripped off and you read these moments where it's like oh any bits of metal alluding to vince earring he weaves it all in super well and he goes back to references from the beginning of the first book to do it so I think a lot of that was woven into Spook's storyline, which made it one of the more interesting uh, plot lines for me. Was just it was serviceable, and there were crucial points and interesting twists that came out of that storyline. So I do think it was relatively successful, and it was pretty entertaining as well. Um, yeah, I I agree. It was relatively successful. I agree. It was more successful probably than a lot of the aspects of of Zane and, and Vin's relationship. But I think it was similar in the sense that we, we didn't get to explore the depth and nuance in the more philosophical or thematic aspects of it. Right. Because we leaned into the awesome plot payoff. And I think, yeah, Sanderson is, he plots better than anyone maybe in the genre i mean i don't know <laughs> He's who way i would up put up against sure. him and he knows how to as we'll get into later he knows how to deliver on things and weave storylines together in a way where it's super satisfactory for the reader and i think he does that really really well with this uh if maybe at the cost of getting deeper into some things that would have been interesting to explore right it would have been nice to see more of the fallout of kelsier's philosophies being interpreted to as basically an oppressive ruler that could have been interesting but i i do appreciate that this was one of the faster moving plot lines it towards the end it did start to lag a bit for me when 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 Sezed and Breeze arrived, they effectively didn't do much. They were just talking about how great Spook is all of a sudden, which we already knew from reading the series. So it, it got kind of weighted down by that. And then the whole romance between Spook and 
that lovely woman, whatever her name is, the citizen's sister. Starts with the letter. You're oh, Bel- Beldir, Beldra. Yeah. Beldra. Yeah. Well, Beldra. Um, yeah. Which I could take or leave. Honestly, it was kind of. It moved along really quickly, and I, I wasn't interested in it, and there, it didn't really end up doing anything uh, I can remember. It was an interesting twist that Beldra was the element, the the coin shot the whole time. Yeah, a, it's kind an of interesting a fun twist. twist. It doesn't. It really didn't service anything. Come to anything <laughs> no. is is the thing, which is what I mean. It totally even on the reread, it got to me. Like, I didn't see it coming, Uh, but maybe that's in part because I didn't remember it from the first time reading it because it doesn't really impact the plot in that that much of a way. But I, yeah, I I feel the same on you. Something I really appreciate after reading Sanderson's annotations about this was when he's reflecting on that relationship, he's like, yeah, I feel like this is kind of weak. And yes. I think you read through those annotations too, right, Charles? So I did. And I think I Sanderson. pulled that line. I have it somewhere. Uh, let's see if I can find it. Well, I'll say it was very interesting to read that. And it it made me really admire Sanderson in a lot of ways. Not just that he's willing to own up like, hey, this thing didn't work out as well as I would have liked uh, in retrospect. But also that... It reminds me of something that my advisor says uh, in in my program uh, that I'm in. Uh, I'm in graduate school, for those wondering. Um, oh, we know. And my, <laughs> uh, my advisor will say, perfect is the enemy of good enough. Or sometimes we'll even just say, perfect is the enemy of done. And I feel like Sanderson does a really good job of acknowledging that and uh, he doesn't let being perfection like being a perfectionist get in the way of getting done with a series right and he's able to look i I mean we can all forgive that spook and beldra isn't the romance of the century over here because (laughs) there's so much that's great about this book that sanderson was able to get out to us because he didn't stop and feel the need to refine that storyline until it was perfect so so well stated so true i agree i found the quote by the way it's short there are one flaws that the spook beldra romance isn't very strong but i can accept that considering that both of them are teenagers with powerful teenage passions and considering what i managed to do with the space allotted i'm pleased and i can respect that i didn't need to read more of it just so that it could be more honest and true you know so i'm happy yeah. with it I, I i question if it even needed to exist at all but it's nice that spook is getting out there and and meeting people <laughs> I'm, I'm happy for him in that respect uh, so he deserves i thought it. maybe some of it is supposed to get at i i think part of why sanderson starts coupling people off a ton is he wants this sense when the world is renewing that like they're gonna repopulate it? Is that weird? Take <laughs> no, away from I mean me? it does make sense. Like he very consciously put them together at the very end of the book when they like emerged from the from the um, from the Chandra dwelling and they saw the yeah. new world for the first time. And they made it a point that they were 
together at that moment, which I would think implies that they're going to pursue their relationship in this new world. Um, (laughs) So I see that. I also think it's a good way of like this element of trust. It's like, I trusted you, Beldra, when I captured you and I promised you I wasn't going to hurt your brother. And I believe that you are this innocent, normal girl, blah, blah, blah. And then you, you did hit me in the back with coins and whatever that hurt, you know, but, but you know, <laughs> I, I still love you anyway. That's kind of a theme that's been, that's been played with throughout the books is trusting people, even running, just even running the risk that you're going to get betrayed because it's better to love someone and get betrayed than to constantly be worrying that people are going to betray you. So that was just another one of those, not, the more prominent ones, but just another example of the kind of relationship trust parallels that Sanderson is writing into all these characters. So I get it. It's, it's good. Yeah. I, I, I like it. And I'm most importantly, as I said, I'm just happy for spook. He, he deserves it. He went through a lot, you know? I mean, finally a relationship between two people with an appropriate age gap. (laughs) That's true. They're also both teenagers, which is nice to read. He does end up in a really huge position of power, though, which I question that as the ending. I'm like, if he is a teenager, I mean, you're you're passing up Ham and Breeze and all these other people to, to choose Spook is an interesting choice, but... If he's got, like, yeah. God on his side, I think he's going to be okay. <laughs> I wouldn't worry too much about it. <laughs> That'll probably help. Yes. Yeah. Um, do we... I kind of... I'm not sure where to place Zed in the overall conversation because I do feel like his character arc is mostly intertwined with the spook one, but a lot of the issues I take with it, they're all just kind of, like, dedicated Zed chapters where he's... Um, questioning his faith and that kind of the um, well of ascension kind of ended that way where he, after all this horrible carnage that he witnessed and and um, uh, Tindwill g- getting uh, killed off screen it, it caused him to not believe in anything but man we go through hundreds and hundreds of pages of just inner monologues of say Zed wrestling with this inner turmoil and it, it's a theme that we already like explored in great depth in <laughs> the wells of ascension and that the come back to it now and and then all of a sudden says just has a revelation in the Chandra caves at the end and then he's cool with it now it was just like oh, it was a lot for me personally to and then he's just with spook being like oh spook is so great i, I love spook man he's really impressive i'm gonna make him king now it was like a really weird part of the story i was wondering what you felt about all of these say zed moments i think that they can be tough to get through at times the way it feels like we're hitting the same beat over and over again i think though i was thinking that we could maybe get more into say zed's arc in our discussion of the ending because i think so much of the ending is is how Caesar's arc that's a good point comes to culminate but i'll say i think all of that that we go through with Caesar and the fact that it goes on for as long as it does 
is part of why it is so rewarding when the it is true. end ends up being one that really drives home the point of Seizet as the hero of ages and Seizet as someone who has faith. So I I also like I how they worked in Seizet being castrated as part of the prophecy. <laughs> At that moment where it's like they didn't say he or she because could it be someone that's neither? I was like, what? <laughs> that's an interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't think that him being castrated makes him not a man. <laughs> right. right. I don't know. But that's what it that said. Weird... That's literally a thought that he had in his own monologue yeah. as he was taking the yeah. power. So I was like, what a weird thought to have. As it's a, a weird one. <laughs> I think that, you know, it was 2000, what was it, 2008 at this time? I, I guess that, I don't know, it doesn't resonate with how I think about things now, but um, it's in there. <laughs> it is in there. A very interesting uh, plot point for for Cezed. And I guess the, the last two characters we have are, are Breeze and Arien, who uh, pretty much don't do anything. Breeze... Uh, Rules over the city <laughs> for a hot minute while Seized and Spook are. Spook is incapacitated and Seized leaves to head to the, to Luthadel, but get ends up going to Conjure Town, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. He leads and does an okay job, and he's one of the few people that gets to see, the new world. So, that's their yeah. storyline all wrapped up. Yeah. I definitely they're feel paired like off too. Yeah, they're paired off. They live happily ever and after in the new world together. I don't know. That's uh, that's part of this like rebirth thing. That's kind of how I was. I didn't see it in Sanderson's uh, annotations, so I thought maybe I was just grasping onto. No, but I think a huge part there, of but... it is that you know um, trust and love in your relationships is a huge part of how. Um, these characters ended up beating Ruin and the whole point of the story. So I think it's just natural that everyone that was kind of coupling off would end being together at that moment. So it's kind yeah. of what he's... That's kind of the victory that Sanderson was building towards just to be like, hey, let's just be normal people together in love in a world that we don't have to worry about fighting and and the world exploding at any moment kind of so i kind of let me know it. if there's an exception to this either every couple either survives together or maybe i shouldn't say dies together but ends up not being at the end uh like both of them end up not being just people at the end right like say so, you're referring to say as... yeah that's why i'm not saying dies because obviously uh <laughs> well, I guess if you're this deep in, you probably are okay with spoilers. Obviously, Vin and <laughs> Ellen are uh, uh, Vin and Ellen both end up dying. Uh, Tindwell dies in the second book, and then Seiza doesn't die per se, but he's not like persisting as a normal person. He's not alive anymore. He's yes, become yeah. a god now. So I would say either dead or not alive. <laughs> I, yeah, what, what, so, I guess could you, you one could argue that Marsh maybe we don't know if he's dead at the end, and he's not. He's not. It's not like he had someone he was with. All right. I'm saying, if you were in a couple in Sanderson's world, you either both survived or both didn't. Yeah. There's no for person all the who, main like, characters anyway. That's true. 
Yeah. Even the minor so. characters like Renault has ended up with somebody. Demue, Demue yeah, I was close. Uh, they, <laughs> they ended up. It's confusing because that's the name of the last name of their. I think it's like Lord R- Renew in the first book. That's what their the house, house impersonating is, right? Right. And then it's uh, Demue is the, the, the character. Yeah. I, I found that confusing. They were both kind of these like Frenchy Cajun names that were very similar. So I was, I just confused them. So, but uh, yeah, that's, they, he ended up happily ever after with somebody, a, a terrorist woman. Good for him. I thought that was kind of forced. Uh, and then, yeah, in Sanderson's annotations, I'm sure you saw this too. Yes, they were he said forced. That <laughs> he, uh, I guess Quite he literally. liked the name from uh, his r- roommate, I think it was, was named Micah Demieux. And he wanted to use the name. And uh, his roommate said, you have to let me survive till the end. And you have to let me... like." end up with someone romantically <laughs> and Sander, i was like okay sanderson like this one's a little forced when i was reading it but then i was like oh it literally is forced yeah, because it was, he told yes. his friend to do that <laughs> pretty good conditions like i'm it was interesting he had the forethought to uh give conditions for the name i gotta remember to do that if anyone tries to offer up the use of my name I wonder what my oh, conditions yeah. would be. Everyone's going to be after the name Charles. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they're they going to definitely attribute it to you. <laughs> yeah, well, it could be my last name, you know. it's True. Someone really wants to use the name McLaughlin for whatever reason. They like that it's hard to pronounce. And it can be pronounced a bunch of different ways, which would make it great for a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, are we feeling good about having covered that part of the the story there? More the... than good. I liked the introduction of new magical elements there. The return of Kelsier, the, the fun twists. I liked it all. Um, a few things that were yeah. glanced over, but that's only because this storyline was minor compared to the other ones, and it just had to, from a plot perspective, just hit a few beats in order to progress the story so i'm more than okay with it okay with moving on yeah a great section very interesting agreed and next up would be the storyline in fadrix with yeoman right yeoman for me is probably my favorite new character by far it, it, he had they also he had the best conversations like the Vin Yeoman and the Ellen Yeoman conversations were some of the more interesting and fresh conversations. They're actually talking yeah. about new things. Having Yeoman, someone just as smart and capable and also open to facts as Ellen and Vin, yet pit arguing on the side that was for the Lord Ruler made for interesting discussions because as we read more in these books and we've even said it from the beginning like the lord ruler gets his redemption moments the more we learn about him the more we start to understand him and and feel for him in a, in a lot of ways even say zed towards the end goes to as far as to say that he was a what was his line he almost said he was I think like a he good does guy say he's a good i think he's 
I think he might even explicitly said have explicitly said he was a good man right which it <laughs> seems a little far for someone he still committed I mean, genocide I, I and I would, oppressed yeah, I a large group far. of people but his intentions yeah. were always good so yes. to have someone defend because there's a lot to be said about you know by killing the lord ruler and doing all the stuff you're doing it's reckless and crazy and you've endangered the whole world which is true and if they had left the Lord Ruler to go about doing his thing, if he he wasn't that bad, he was acting for the interest of the world in his the best way that he could, which was also true. So those moments of dialogue were very interesting, and also Yeoman was the only elements of real military tactics that we got to see. Like he pulled a fast one on them by attacking and causing them to charge and then he um, did a surprise sneak attack on the Coloss camp so he was always one step ahead of villain ellen from a tactics perspective he actually captured vin so these were all these things that were happening that i felt were actually more action based and were interesting and way more intrigue everything else was kind of like these inner monologue things on themes that have already been heavily discussed for two books now and so this storyline it was just nice to see like a new character new thought concepts and and new intrigue and action so one of my more favorite storylines for sure yeah i thought there was more willingness on sanderson's end to actually have a character with different views who isn't a shitty person right and I appreciated that. I mean, especially when you compare them to Chet and um, Straff from the last book, it's like th- this guy, Yeoman, is so much better than both of them because he's actually a reasonable guy and in many ways a likable guy. But he's also like a, a force and a threat and a political challenge. Yeah, and I mean... as Chet hits somewhat similar but not as strong points, I think, in the previous novel. it's uh, Yeoman's definitely better than Chet with it, but Straff is just all out. Yeah. Mustache-twirling evil guy. And, I mean, there's only so far you can can get on that or there's only so much interest in that. Because Yeoman's not exactly evil like Straff was. Oh, not at all. He did manage to do a good job with the city that he was ruling. He made good points about Ellen just acting like a tyrant. And um, he eventually saw logic and reason ended up being a very helpful force for the sake of good. Once he was given enough proof that they weren't crazy, he changed course. So all those reasons made him a way better character than Straff and more multidimensional. Yeah. Well, Charles, what do you have for what the the larger point of these storylines with Yeoman and Fadrix? That's a good question. For me, a large part of this for me was kind of more of the Ellen's uh, development. In this book, Ellen's coming into his own as a ruler like obviously he was had to change a whole lot of his character in in book two going from just the 
the foolish boy to actually someone who could rule. But now he's trying to work through his problems more by himself. I think these, this chapter did a good job of separating him from Vin and putting him in situations, like giving him the power to defend himself from things like Kolosk and then now forcing him to go and do the things that Vin would have normally done, like fight a whole bunch of Kolos and and meet with um, meet with Yeoman one on one and and things like that. Because Sanderson, I think, um, very cleverly removed Vin as a as a factor from a lot of the plot points in the end of the story, and I yeah. think a lot of that served towards forcing Ellen to kind of work through his own problems without any kind of support. And it's also just kind of a way for him to decide on who he really wants to be as a leader. Kelsier still kind of looms over all of these things and also the Lord ruler as well. So here's Ellen coming into power and he's, I mean, honestly, he's doing a, bad job only because he was dealt the worst cards in that the world was ending and he's like i don't at this point he's not worried about being as being kelsier he's more independent now but now he just wants to be competent as a leader and and actually take charge he doesn't want to be like a lord ruler he wants to actually do good but he's keeps getting defeat after defeat and he has no idea what's going on so trying to work through that was a really interesting part of the story Another aspect I think the storyline does a good job with is you have, you know, Yeoman is still very much, he pretty much makes a mini Luthadel in the city. You still have the nobility and yeah. the ska, and there's still the the balls and banquets. <laughs> Maybe you could argue the whole point of this was that so Sanderson had an excuse to write another ball scene. <laughs> Couldn't help himself. <laughs> uh, but I like those ball scenes quite a bit. Um so it was a large part of that. It's just kind of like a reintroduction to the more traditional elements of the Lord Ruler's rule and how, you know, was that a bad thing? It, it looks pretty good compared to the state of everywhere else in the world. So that was another interesting aspect. And then you have like the ATM and the storage cache and, you know, gives Ham something to do. I guess he he's the army guy, but not really Gotta the army guy. Gotta keep busy. But yeah, Ham was busy wearing vests and um, yep. starting to make a logic puzzle, but not actually <laughs> pitching one. So that, you know, someone had to do that. Yeah. And we get uh, Chet moved in as the person who stops Ham from ever actually getting into any of his philosophical puzzles. And he stops him no from, yeah. he also <laughs> stops him from being the army guy puzzles. because for so long, it's like Ham was like, oh, Ham, you can be the army guy. And it's like, nah, I don't want to. And then Clubs was the army guy. So it's like, okay, yeah. he kills, there's two army guys. One has to go. Makes sense. Now we're in this book and there's still another army guy. So Ham is kind of this redundancy. is just piled on for poor Ham. Um, I honestly Poor didn't Ham. see the the need yeah. for for Chet, or one of them should have gone at some point. Though I don't know why he kept both of them around the whole time. So. Well, Ham gets to reunite with his family. Yeah, in that was the sweet. New world. He does. That's, oh, he also Ham also gets his big moment in this where he actually comes to a decision. 
yeah. like a yes or no answer to something. He just basically agreed with Ellen, though. It wasn't like... But he said it before Ellen said it, uh, I think. I don't remember. I think Ellen was kind of going that way anyway, though. But I think the fact that Ham, this person who was so indecisive had also reached that decision yeah, yeah, yeah. was okay <laughs> fine jeez Charles. i mean it wasn't it I wasn't didn't know that... we hit a sore point for you here for me i ham never got his real moment to shine honestly i'm glad he ended up with his family at the end he's talked about his family in in each book and we never saw them and he made he was Everyone else got to be with the people they loved except for Ham for some reason, so I'm glad that he did able to uh, meet up with them at the end, which was nice. But that decision, it was what, for Ellen to go fight the Coloss on his own? It was for Ellen not to invade the oh, city. Oh, okay. Tons of got it. Coloss which was what Ruin was bit, trying to tempt him to do. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and so they ended up trying to go to Luthadel and then backing into the backing into the city got it got it yeah so that was a good moment that's really the only I think they kind end up of, retreating they do like end they up retreat with the yeah they go back to yeoman they, and go behind his they yeoman lets them in and that's eventually yeah eventually so that was so i think i mean it doesn't hit as well as it could have i guess because ham had not been a huge factor leading up to it, but he at least gets that moment. And yeah, I mean, it's something. And like going back to the spook romance, the spook Belgian romance, do we really need a a more fleshed out ham character arc? Like we could have had this whole thing where he doesn't want to lead his comrades in arms and then he grows into someone that can lead the army, but... Do we need that? I think Sanderson kind of was weighing out like what parts of the story need the most attention and gave Ham as much as he could without sure. taking away from more important story elements. So I get it yeah. completely. And much like Sanderson, uh, we probably ought to know when we've given Ham too much attention <laughs> and uh, <laughs> get to something else on, on our <laughs> podcast over here so i i had similar points about what what was trying to be done with Mm -hmm. these scenes i wrote toy with ideas of ellen as lord ruler which i think you were getting at so throughout the book ellen is no longer really grappling with am i kelsier but now he's grappling with now that i've become this leader who knows how to fit pragmatism into my idealistic view am i just the lord ruler and i think we get some of that we get the nostalgia including the the ball and i want to say i really really like that fall scene i kind of like the fact that vin and ellen end up dying at the end of all of it I think I, I really appreciate that they kind of like get their dance. Yeah. I don't know how you felt about that. But no, I, I liked that ball I scene. That. I thought they were, you know, they were calling back to book one, which was a nice payoff for those of us that have been reading through it. And, you know, it was one of the lighter moments, in, especially in a series that has no comic relief, really. And it's just 
like depressing and and violent and oppressive it was nice to take a break from that for a moment and have a more sweet uh scene where they're dancing and he pulls out the book and stuff like that so yeah i get it it was sweet i liked it i think we needed it yeah it was one of my more it was one of my more favorite scenes actually i Every time this book did something new and interesting, those were definitely the parts of the book that shined. There was a lot of repeats and themes and internal struggles and stuff. So when we got to do something different, like go to a ball and and have Vin and Ellen dance, it was like, oh, this is different. This is an interesting side of their character that we get to see that we haven't seen before. It's you know, it, it's a nice read for sure. And my my only last bit is that we get Vin and Ruin together here, and I think yes. that obviously was very important for the plot. And I think and we, yeah, yeah. And go on, I just want to say, just um, Sanderson having we're talking about rereading this and how we could fill an episode talking about it. The only point I would make here is the whole earring being a hemolurgy uh, spike was yeah. laid out here like when you, it's like watching a magician use sleight of hand in a trick like when you know the trick and you're watching them do it knowing what happens and you see how he kind of that moment he slips the card up his sleeve and then pulls it back out somewhere later it was so interesting to reread this series and and pick up on those sleight of hand moments like right in plain sight he's mentioning little tidbits about hemology and then how when she has the earring on and off and and how that weaves in with when she hears Reen's voice and is really uh, really well done i th- i think so too and there's a lot of that good sleight of hand stuff going on in this storyline it almost on the reread it almost makes it more impressive that i know the earring one i didn't figure out until you know, right before Marsh is removing it from her. And maybe that I, maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention or, or whatever, but the fact that on my reread, it felt so obvious. Right. Means that it really was in plain sight. And I think for me, that makes it even more impressive that somehow all the misdirections that Sanderson is throwing out there had me going up all the wrong alleys trying to figure out what was actually going on and then when i know what things are red herrings i'm i'm much e- <laughs> it's much easier to see how almost obvious it seems but that's what makes a twist so great is when it was inevitable inevitable and you're by the end of it thinking how did i not see this coming yeah i have so much respect for sanderson it takes some serious guts to plant clues right in plain sight and like having a moment where you're talking about spikes being any size of metal next scene vin is in the cellar like and the earring comes on and then it's like to do all that right in front of the reader who's already trying to figure out what's happening is really uh really uh brave and and almost crazy i don't know how sanderson pulls it off it's uh Really it takes impressive. some gall. It takes quite yeah, the and gall. I, I think that. Well, first off, I don't know if we're going to get to this or not in our ending segment, but I want to say how he wraps that earring plot line all the way back to 
what you've been hearing since the first book about how Vin's mother had killed her baby sister, that the earring was the weapon used to kill Vin's sister, who was a seeker. And that's why Vin has been able to pierce copper clouds for now. uh, I mean, we've read like 2,500 pages of this series, and that's been such a big part of all of it. And don't forget the scene where she's with Marsh in the tower, and he's like, how did you get that earring? Why do you still wear it? And then it's like, they even mention, like, say Zed mentioned that in those chapter endings where he's like... um, yeah, ruin works in ways where it's like, and you and you make you wonder like why someone would compulsively wear an earring their whole life, and it's like, oh my yeah. gosh, like all the payoff on this is huge. It's uh, it's yeah. There's so much satisfaction that comes from that. I think what Sanderson does so well is he has this incredible understanding of storytelling and writing and really reader expectation that he writes scenes that serve multiple purposes. And as readers, we're very easily able to accept the surface level purpose of that scene and then not think back to that for a long time. Like that Marsh scene feels pretty similar when we're reading the first book to a bunch of other scenes she's had with, let's say Breeze or anyone else teaching her about their Alimantic metal. And, we're thinking, oh, this is just them having a conversation and bonding just like those previous conversations. And it is. Plus, it's setting up this crazy twist we're going to get. So I I love how Sanderson does that. And it can, even a a reader who's trying to scrutinize things can dismiss scenes as only serving the single purpose rather than serving both. I think that was a really well said, Dylan. It's so true. He... That, that just like right in front of your face, you know, he has a scene serve multiple purposes and some of them don't pay off until two books later. And that's one of the biggest benefits of reading Sanderson and one of the biggest reasons to read Mistborn is just all the payoff you get at the end of this book. But before we get there, we have one more character's storyline to really walk through and that's Tensoon the Chandra. Um, yeah so Tensoon is a cult favorite cult favorite I, I can see why because again we were I was talking about it was the best parts of this book were the things that were new and nothing was more new than the Tensoon chapters you're introduced to a whole new species like there have sure. been Chandra but there have only been two and you know them individually but you don't know how the whole race works so you you get a new setting you get a whole new culture and a whole new political spectrum and um, you learn even more about the characters that like I think that Chandra, which was revealed to be Tensoon, you know, we were kind of really falling in love with him in book two when we were learning more about Chandra, which we never really thought to think about in book one, and they became like this almost like this tease that now we're getting a whole information dump on us in the beginning of this book. And so I can easily see why he's a fan favorite in this book. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air uh, compared to all the other characters and storylines that we've sat with for thousands of pages. Yeah. I had a buddy I recommended this series to a little while back who one of his main takeaways after this third book was, I get why we didn't get more time with 
Tensoon and the Conjurer, but I would have liked more time with Tensoon and the Conjurer because <laughs> it really is an interesting culture based around this contract. And it's really not like anything I've seen in fantasy before. There's not there's not really a parallel that I can draw where I could say, oh yeah, the the Conjurer are basically just like this other fantasy culture but with a slight twist or something it's just new and different and i think we you know obviously the changeling thing has been done before but uh, the whole based on this contract with the lord ruler hemallergy spikes plus the changeling stuff and their history with men it's just so unique and i i really appreciate that about these chapters i think that's what we get is we get uh in terms of purpose of this we get introduced to a whole new culture that is going to be hugely important to the book's resolution because it turns out that they are also the terrorist or former terrorist people the ferrochemists that the lord ruler has transformed so that ends up being gigantic to how things resolve and then we get more info on on hemallergy and and we just get to see a cool don't forget the atm stash of course yes the atm (laughs) stash is gigantic to this absolutely i agree wholeheartedly i mean you talk about the point of the storylines it's everything you said and it's done in a way that gives us a brand new setting and it was nice to see Cezed come into the picture and and experience that with fresh eyes as well. It gets him excited again, and it it causes the huge revelations that bring us into the ending of the series that gave Cezed the knowledge and the faith that he needed to become the hero of ages. Yeah, and I think... I I really liked actually that he he starts to come around with Ten Soon, uh, just kind of dropping that line uh, <laughs> where uh, the first announcer I believe is what it was right where he says that and and that's a a callback to something in book two where the when you read the epigraph the first the the holy first witness sorry the Holy first witness, I think, is the thing that the the ska start calling Sezed, but the announcer, I believe, is the terrorist religion. Yes, the actual. That sounds right. So, in the epigraph in the Well of Ascension, uh, like start of the chapters, we get the announcer. Uh, like written as how it actually is. Then later in the book, this is Well of Ascension, Sezed is reading through that same passage and it now says Holy First Witness. And he's like, there's something wrong with this. Right. And obviously we find out Ruin's changing, blah, 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 blah. But I love that the thing that Tensoon brings up is uh, that thing. It's a thing that uh, Sezed was first like, wait, there's something something wrong with this this word feels right because ruin can change um he can change writings but he cannot change thoughts so if you remembered something that could not be changed so that's how tensoon was able to remember and say 
the correct uh, terminology, which is what yeah. triggered Sezed's um, thought process and figuring out those last pieces of the puzzle around the hero of ages. And I think that helps make it more full circle to why he's able to come around is it feels like, oh, this is, this is a callback to one of the hugest things for why he lost faith to begin with. And right. it's, uh, now he's starting to hear, oh, this is from someone who actually knows the truth of all this. And I, and I like, I guess we'll get to this more in the endings, but I like that the terrorist religion then doesn't solve all of his problems. Like he still has to come around to taking this leap of faith. Right. But at least you, he, you're right in that Like as more pieces started to fall into place, say Zed's excitement and faith started to kind of trickle back up. And then I also yeah. think just by witnessing the Chandra and the fact that they were the the original um, terrorists, the, the original um, ferrochemist, ferrochemist. Uh, was another huge boost for him. And then their commitment to the religion as well was also another yeah. inspiring moment for Sezed as well. The fact that they were willing to basically kill themselves to prevent ruin from taking them over and using them for destruction uh, was a huge yeah. um, motivating thing for Sezed to witness and kind of increased his own faith. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. Some would even say nailed it. <laughs> nailed it like a hemallergy spike in Hey-o. Marsh's face. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> that, <laughs> I think if you ended that like three words before, it would have been perfect. <laughs> it's still pretty good, though. <laughs> not bad, not bad. It's better than... <laughs> I think it's better than my push and pull joke and better than my, my attempt to lead off the episode by saying oh, that there God. are no twists because it isn't Mistborn. <laughs> well, yeah, you set a pretty good bar for me for that intro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's only episode like six, people. <laughs> give, us, give us some yeah. credit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, my, that's one of my favorite parts of our podcast is when because we haven't released any episodes to let let people behind the curtain um (laughs) that you start getting angry at listeners that don't even exist yet for not cutting us slack (laughs) this has definitely happened before (laughs) i can just i just know how internet comment sections work and if you know i can already anticipate it but maybe that's just me We'll only know when these come out. And this is the last episode that we're recording before we start pushing them out live. This was our, if we can commit to finishing a trilogy, then we can plop the money into a podcast host and start launching these. So a little more behind the curtain glimpse into how we yeah, do things Yeah, this is a here. historic episode for a lot of reasons. Many, many reasons. And shall we just bring this bad boy home with a discussion on those final twists we've kind of been brought there a few times as we talk about the end of these individual storylines but now we're at the moment where we're talking about these last hundred or so pages where vin absorbs all of the mist which ends up being the power of preservation and she becomes god and i really like 
the way that those chapter perspectives were written about how she still has the mind and consciousness of a mortal human being, but she's starting to do stuff that gods do, like be omnipresent and and interact with things at a much larger scale, like moving planets and plugging volcanoes and things like that. And it was really interesting how he wrote that kind of struggle to change perspective from that of a single human being to a god was really interesting and a really well done like a really well done POV chapters for Sanderson. Yeah, that had to be hard to write well and he he really did a great job with it. Right. It's like how would so someone I, who just got the power of a god but was a human being think and behave and move and things like that. So really interesting to read his take on it, which was almost, I kind of pictured Vin as being like a white mist in like, kind of like um, when Harry Potter, spoiler alert, when Harry Potter like dies and he's in that huge white light, never ending whiteness talking to Dumbledore. That's kind of how I pictured uh, Vin and Ruin talking to each other. And like, they're in like That's this. That's pretty similar to how I read it too. <laughs> they're in like this just vast whiteness and it's all kind of misty and swirly and he's maybe a black mist and she's a white mist and they're um, kind of interacting separately from the world and how it's going on. That's kind of how I was processing it in my brain. I, I'm, I'm excited to see the movie, to see what they do with those scenes yeah me too it'll it'll be interesting (laughs) it's a hard someone's got a hard job ahead of them (laughs) movies down the down the line yeah someone's got a really hard job ahead of them to film that (laughs) yeah well there's there's so many endings to this ending i feel like there's a bunch of (laughs) storylines that climax in succession, I would say, which is a little different than it, the previous books were almost just like everything would dovetail at once. But in right. this one, there's almost just like several twists and turns that serve as climaxes to separate storylines. I, I guess the the big ones are the, the earring bit coming to uh, an end. That right. whole thing is really well done and we spoke about that already there's finding out what the mists were uh, that they were part of preservation right and all of preservation's um attempts to thwart the ruin given its diminished capacity so snapping people and and trying to lead ellen and vin along and what was stopping preservation from fully giving powers to vin all of those revelations were came out really quickly at the end of this one at the end of this kind of chapter where vin takes over all the powers yeah so that's uh, that's a big reveal and then we get ellen getting access to all this atm and obviously he has this big horde of mistborn and other mistings from all these people who are being snapped. A lot of ATM mistings also. Yes, those two, which we find out exist because... Of Yeoman. uh, Yeoman is one, yeah. So that's another purpose that that serves, is to get that out there. And they're just... (laughs) It's an awesome scene, because this is 
something that you've come to a point where you're so used to ATM being this ridiculously valuable thing. So if, if Vin could just get one bead of it, it would make <laughs> such a difference in the narrative of the previous books. Right. I mean, especially the second book. And then there's a line in there that's something like, Ellen had swallowed so many that it, like he thought he was going to throw up and yeah. he felt sick. Yeah. Right. I loved that. <laughs> I loved that too. And it was also great to find out like, yes, it is. It makes you virtually indestructible, but there's a consequence to overusing it. And so I think Sanderson made a very conscious decision to show the weaknesses of Atium in that you know, just because you can see what's happening doesn't mean you'll have the strength to react to it. And that's what ends up happening to a lot of the um, ATM mistings and eventually to poor Ellen himself. Yeah, and they run out. I yes. mean, really, I think they, they run out of it is what happens to Ellen. And he, it was a really interesting, so Ellen ends up being, killed after he ends up being beheaded this. by marsh yeah which i loved <laughs> oh yeah and i think we'll we'll get into why we think this is so successful of an ending but i think that uh, the willingness to know when a character has reached the end of their arc and to uh, <laughs> cut off their head yes. is something that sanderson does extremely well so he does that with ellen here and then he basically does that with vin immediately after except obviously he doesn't cut off her head but he has her have like nothing left to try right. to be alive she, for anymore. even in the book it's like she's talking to ruin it's like that was your mistake now i don't really have a reason to exist anymore yeah and so she kind of did a kamikaze attack i guess is how you would describe it she to- takes down ruin by taking down herself. By taking down herself. Um, and Sanderson has some great stuff in the annotations about why he chose to kill off Vin and Ellen. And I, it's a, it'd be a giant quote to, to read it right yeah, now. I have I a quick little section of it, there. which is nice. Yeah. Uh, either way, this is where the book was pushing from the beginning. Vin and Ellen followed in Kelsier's footsteps. They were both ready to give their lives, and in doing so, save those they love. In my opinion, that's not a tragic or sad ending. It's just an honest one. Yeah, He's that's the... a great grab. <laughs> and that was in my giant paragraph, but that gets it across <laughs> extremely well. There's so much more. And then he also goes into a much more detail about how the powers of ruin and preservation work, which is also worth reading. I don't know. If, I, I don't think we should get into it, but there is so much that he has thought through and like written in passively in these books that he goes on to explain in great detail in his annotations. That's answers a lot of questions people might have about exactly how ruins powers work and things like that. Yeah. So he says it's an honest one. And I think that's part of what's so great about it. And Sanderson gets that too, that for it to feel like all this has been, such a giant undertaking and that it's been worth all this effort, all this kind of stuff to lose our two main characters drives home the sacrifice it took to save this world. Yes. So and well stated. You don't get that. If those two get to 
live on in this new world. It doesn't feel the same because, like, I don't know, there's only so many times you can kill clubs. Like, it's <laughs> not, it doesn't feel like as big a deal to kill clubs or dachshund or even pretty much anyone else. Even ham. That was left. Even even ham <laughs> would be, <laughs> would be, you know, like, it feels like it's costly, but to lose both Vin and Ellen just makes it feel like, holy shit, this is what it <laughs> took for us to even have a world left. Right. And I, I love that Sanderson's willing to do it. And, and he speaks to, like, he has logical reasons why it makes sense. But really, more than anything, he says it just felt like the right thing to do. I, right you nailed it. I think that's a huge part of what makes this ending so great. And this this image also of that they can finally rest because I feel like all three of these books, they've done nothing but fighting and worrying and, and struggling and never knowing when the world was literally going to crumble around them. And now you get that feeling of finality when these characters can finally relax in the wake of a new world and in this case that kind of rest and relaxes through death which is very powerful and very honest and it gives a lot of weight to the whole series and their struggles because it's like you said it's what it took the i mean say zed did mention a nice moment that he spoke to them and that uh, sanderson confirmed there is an afterlife so you do kind of it does feel a little more happy then if yeah. they were just totally d- dead and gone. But... It's interesting. <laughs> he gets, it's almost like best of both worlds <laughs> that he's able to get there. I'm like, I was almost trying to figure out why I was not more, it almost feels like that's a cop out when I, it's like when I think about it, it seems like a cop out. But when I feel about it, Charles, it feels right. <laughs> what you feel and good? I, yeah, I mean, like just like Sanderson was saying, it feels right, and I guess part of it because faith is such a huge theme of this series, and we find out that Sazed becomes God basically at the end of this. Like an afterlife doesn't feel like a push to say that that exists at this point. So I think it doesn't feel like a cop out because. Like, oh, yeah, why wouldn't there be an afterlife? Like, there's clearly this god now running this whole show, and there's been ruin and preservation. So it's been built toward in a way where, I guess if it was just, like, <laughs> Game of Thrones or something, True. and then we all of a sudden find out that two characters are, like, happy together in an afterlife, we're like, what? True, but I mean, it's not, like a, it's not like a, like a Dragon Ball thing where they get wished back to life and they're like back on the world again and it's not like a Gandalf situation where he comes back and is even cooler now it's they're gone like they are (laughs) it's over they're dead they're not gonna like be walking around and interacting with their buddies anymore but they do have some sort of influence in the afterlife and Sanderson mentions Kelsier also had some moments where he was popping in in this book from the afterlife which isn't worth getting into other than read the annotations if you really want to dig into this but like there is weaving in of the afterlife but it's more of like a larger picture like you know slight nudge slight a voice here a voice there but they are dead so i think sanderson he's not 
necessarily playing the best of both worlds, but he does leave you feeling a bit happier. He's giving you that glimmer of hope, which the image of them lying dead, holding each other's hands in grass, like green grass is such a powerful image. And um, I just, I just really love this ending for me. It's like when you read these sprawling, huge fantasy books and the stakes are so high, like the end of the world, how could you possibly write an ending that, lives up to all the drama and I have so much respect for Sanderson and that he always delivers and especially in in this book where it's just he it's a proper ending it's a satisfying ending it's a fulfilling ending and it it fits so well into the structure from the book since the first chapter so for all those reasons it's just really masterful couldn't have said it better myself there Charles (laughs) and I think the last bit to make sure we really dissect here is Sazed as the hero of ages. So great. Yeah. You always, you're built up to think it's Vin and and you could potentially entertain Ellen perhaps, but Sazed is such a perfect choice. And yeah, I, love that it plays into his idea of faith and that he was i mean who was better equipped to put the earth in the right orbit and remember all the plants and the stars and stuff than a keeper than say zed who had all of the knowledge of all the keepers in his on his, his arms on his arms yeah so as the prophecy foretold as the prophecy foretold he would wear knowledge on his arms or something like that and I mean, Vin tried, and she made it even worse than the Lord Ruler did. So, it, Sanderson was like, "Hey, it takes the knowledge of like all of human understanding to pull this off." So it could have never been Vin. Vin was always the the fighter, and when there's no more fighting to do, her arc is ended in that way. When it comes time to actually move on into a new world, they was so smart to choose Sezed as as the one to kind of take on that role as the hero of ages really brilliant yeah and so the the series is about uh, faith and trust in a lot of ways and we can probably get a little more into all that um it's also about balance Mm -hmm. and I, i think that the conclusion not being that, oh, we defeat Ruin and now Sezed becomes preservation and now everything's good. The fact that Ruin is actually just like, almost like entropy. Like, yeah, well, it's like right. at one point referred it's a to force. even as like change. Mm-hmm. It's like Ruin's more this force of changing things, but things always kind of go toward same thing with entropy. Like, uh, falling apart rather than being brought together or anything. And you need both preservation and ruin or change or entropy or what have you to actually be like the most successful creator, which is what Sazed ends up doing. So I think the idea of balance is obviously right. huge in Alamance. I mean, the idea of combining both and... powers together is the solution is a super great moment just you were yeah. just the idea of when they exist separately they lend themselves towards destruction but by combining together 
they're able to create a force that reinvents the world in a more hopeful image. Yeah. And then the other the other bit's really this like trust and, and faith stuff with Seizen and in a I, I would say that trust and, and faith are pretty similar. I'd say sure. trust tends to be more at the interpersonal level and more about something that you have that someone completely has the capability to not do so, like not betray you so like you can like trust someone not to hurt you when you're getting into a relationship with them and things like that but faith is almost this larger version of that where you actually don't know that the thing you're putting faith into has the power to do what you're hoping and i think that's what obviously Seizet is struggling with throughout this novel, especially starting with really the end of the second book and to see him come into his own in a way where he ends up believing, not because he found the answer after looking at it in a logical way, but after just kind of making the decision of, I'm going to have faith in the same way that Vin had made the decision way earlier in the first book that I'm going to trust people, I think really wraps us up back to the themes that have been throughout the whole series. And Absolutely. It's, that's part of what makes it such a beautiful end is, you know, you can make trust and faith separate themes, but it feels like, like so many things in Mistborn, something that wraps all the way back up to the earliest pages. Very well said. And le- leave it to Sanderson to write a character that ha- gives up on faith and loses faith and then becomes a god. It's a very uh, Sanderson yes. moment <laughs> character arc where it's like that talk about push and pull. It's like the character that loses total faith is the one whose arc is resolved by becoming embracing faith and becoming a god, like as extreme as you can go. Yes. So it's another just to pile on to what you're saying of, of bringing home those early themes. It's uh, such a um, poetic end to Zed's arc as a character. Mm-hmm. And the epigraphs build toward him really well. I like some of the subtle stuff, like you find out that he's third in the line of succession after Ellen did yes. Finn, and the <laughs> prophecies say that like they weren't born a king, but they'd come to it. So even just things like that. And again, I did pick up on that. There was that moment where purposes. it's like, well, technically after Ellen, it's Vin, and then after Vin, it's Zed. And then, yes. like, way down is you, Chet. <laughs> so. Yeah, so you think it's like this kind of like humorous Sanderson's just giving us a wink and a nudge (laughs) yeah so and there's also another wink where Vin tells Seizet that the power she held for a few moments was unlike anything oh yeah she's like you don't know what that's like yeah yeah it's like nothing you could imagine (laughs) unlike anything you could ever imagine right yeah something like like uh, that yeah so Sanderson was having a few laughs at at our expense in those moments he was (laughs) oh and I I think the the last thing that gets 
driven home in this ending is that Sanderson fulfills what, what he refers to as his promise that the world would end with green plants and blue skies and let's be real flowers. I know. I, I think Sanderson did a good job of reminding us throughout the series that this is not a typical, like the ground is black, the plants are brown and the sky is red. Like this is not earth as you're used to it so victory is achieved when you know skies are blue and plants are green and flowers exist and breeze is like this is really strange like (laughs) this is not right so it was uh charles that move if this movie happens that scene where the world bursts into (laughs) color It'll be like after the Wizard of Oz. Three movies, <laughs> I know, right? But after three movies, not yeah. after like just the beginning. I mean, obviously, Wizard of Oz is different because that was like when color was first becoming a, a thing, <laughs> right? Uh, on in movies, but I'll say that it'll be an incredible scene because the movies will capture this aesthetic, hopefully, extremely well, right? And we'll be just so used to seeing this drab gray world and then it'll burst into color i'm just that's how you know that the ending will victory is achieved when you see the yeah for the first time you see like a weird way too cheery bright atmosphere in that world i'm curious to see how they'll handle like just is every scene gonna have red sky and mist and ash doesn't make for really great (laughs) cinematography but it'll need to be Someone else also has a really tough job ahead of them to make that look good for three movies. Yeah, I don't envy that person. But. And we can't <laughs> talk about, we forgot to talk about the most satisfying ending that uh, Sanderson wrote, which that Ham gets reunited with his family at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, as you were starting there, I was like, oh my God, did we miss something hugely important? Because there's so many endings here. You could say that we did. We haven't seen Ham's family. The whole point of this was that Ham didn't want to expose his family to, uh, I guess, Inquisitors. And you get that final sense of totality when he finally gets to reunite with them. And that's how you know that victory and peace have been uh, achieved in this world. So, I feel like what would have driven that home even better is if Ham started with one of his logic puzzles and his wife would actually listen to it. <laughs> so you're like, oh shit. That would like have been every cute. Every person in this story has told him to shut up. Or she even like participates in it, it, you know, like she yeah, like yeah. In, in gets, <laughs> builds on the discussion. <laughs> yeah. So you that can, would be... You'd be like, oh, like someone is actually willing to have these conversations <laughs> with him. And we need to get these notes him. to Sanderson so he can put them in the screenplay of the movies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the last scene that people want in the movies is Ham telling his first actual like complete thought that isn't interrupted <laughs> by Chet or by Breeze. <laughs> Oh boy, did we cover it all? Is this it? Is this the end? I mean, once we're once we got to Ham, I have to think we. <laughs> I we wanted to end it on Ham. It would have been disappointing if we had to talk about something else after that. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you <laughs> you have the hottest ham takes in the oh, business. <laughs> oh, <laughs> leave the alliteration to the professionals, buddy. <laughs> Oh, my God. You know, I thought of it. I knew it was bad. And I just had to say it anyway. <laughs> Guys, so, I this is a, another reminder that we are on episode six. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we should know better by now. Not a, no, not everything. This is our across. first trilogy. And I think we did a very admirable job. And I... You know, I am just in awe of Sanderson's skill when it come came to uh, rereading this trilogy. He did a fantastic job. I think this was a really smart first pick for us to kind of introduce ourselves and our thoughts to the podcasting world. And I yeah. mean, I had a great time buddy reading this with you, sir. Charles, I had a fantastic time buddy reading this with you. And I look forward to many, many more buddy reads. I am so excited to be coming to the end of our first trilogy together. Mistborn was a great call for it. And let there be many, many more buddy reads down the line. Well said, sir. Here's to more buddy reads in the future. Oops. <laughs> Wrong song. Okay. <laughs> guys <laughs> this is just the sixth episode so uh charles do you want to do it i think you get you get nice and defensive about it you uh just get angry at them for giving us flack they haven't given us yet guys look <laughs> it's only the sixth episode okay the and and besides it can be kind of fun to to get a glimpse into the, the bloopers and the outtakes because it's the journey and the the missteps along the way that add to the finality of this series. So that's it, everybody. I'm going to play the right song now. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, that activated my Siri for some reason on my phone. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I think we should run this back. We'll do the whole thing over again. (laughs) Do you want to do it over again? (laughs) we've never done that before (laughs) all right everybody i don't have the patience for that me neither this is gonna be good enough thank you all for listening this concludes our first ever buddy read trilogy misborn by brandon sanderson thank you so much for being a part of this experience we've had a great time uh, stay tuned. In a few more days, we're going to have our review of the reviews for uh, Mistborn, the Hero of Ages. Hey, yo, you do not want to miss that. That will be kind of our parting our parting uh, swan song to Mistborn. So you definitely do not want to miss it. And that is all for today. So I will leave you with these parting words. Go forth and conquer, friends. I I said series and that made my <laughs> that activated Siri on my phone. 
And I was like, what? That's amazing. And it started playing music. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Oh, gosh.